Good, right? Is that it? <laughs> okay. All right. So here we go. I want to thank you guys for doing something. Um, this is Labor Day. We've been gone for much of the month of August, and, and I'm going to thank you in a second for that. But I just want to say I have the best Labor Day sermon for you today. I mean, you really did good by coming here today because you're going to get, like, the perfect Labor Day sermon. I want you to think about what Labor Day is, okay? Labor Day is, right, it's supposed to be this time to celebrate the American work and all this. It's not that. Here's what it is. Labor Day is the last gasp of summer air before all the work of fall and winter kicks in, right? Labor Day is this perfect little transitional moment where you work nine months of the year to make a living so that you can really live for three months. And in the Northwest, we don't really get those first two months. You know, it's really only sunny in August. So we really pile the whole thing up into August, and man, we just go for it in August, right? So that's what Labor Day is. It's this capper. It's this perfect transition between the rest and relaxation and enjoyment of life and the other things which can be enjoyable too, but they are, after all, work, which is a four-letter word. So it's a little different, okay? So this is, Labor Day is exactly that. And this congregation lets Julie and me do something every August, which I, I just can't tell you how much I treasure it. I think it, it's a value to the church too, but you guys let us really kind of be gone the month of August. And I'm going to tell you a story about what happened this August that is very much a part of the thing, but I, I do want you to understand something. Because it's Labor Day, I want you to kind of picture yourself on the, on the back deck of a nice house, right? With the with the hamburgers grilling over here and the smells coming across and a glass of lemonade in your hand. And I want you to sit back and kind of soak in this story I'm about to tell as opposed to think of this as like a big teaching sermon. Because actually what I want you to do is I want you to feel something that I think the Lord wants to communicate to us. Like I say, perfect Labor Day. So with that said, Mike Byron, who is so many different things, has led small groups, has, was on the council, on OST, lots of other stuff. Mike, would you pray for the sermon, lift up another t uh, church? God, we just invite you to be here. We need you. Each of us need you, and Lord, speak through Kurt today to each of us. We love Kurt, Lord. We need you. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for meeting us. And Lord, I also pray for uh, Blue Sky Church down the road, that you meet each, each of them this morning and that uh, your spirit would be there with them. Thank you, Lord. Thanks, Lord. Amen. I also pray for Aaron O'Hara, who's here today, and that he would just, that you would anoint him and that you would, this church that he's starting and this work that he's doing, that your presence would be there so strongly and that you would let him go forth and make a huge difference in the world. Thank you, Lord, for... Uh, Another faithful Lake Samra who's gone out in the world is making a huge difference. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay. Are you sitting back? Can you smell the burgers? You got the lemonade in your hand? Okay. Here's what we normally do in August. We take a 3,000-mile trip. <laughs> that may not sound like a lot of fun to you guys, but it's a lot of fun for us. We drive to Spokane and we see my older brother. Then we drive to Jackson Hole, Wyoming and we see my parents for a few days. Then we go down to Denver where both of our kids used to live. One of them still does, one of them doesn't now. But both of our kids live there and a brother lives there. So I'd, we'd stay with him and see our kids. And then we would go to, say, Iowa where Julie's relatives are and we would see them. And then we would go down to Lake of the Ozarks, which is in Missouri, and we would hang out with her mom and dad a little while. And then we would come back to Denver and spend a little more time with the kids and my brother. And then we would take the long haul back and that would be this big, long trip that we would take about 3,000 miles, and as long as it was in miles, it was even more in socializing, okay? Because it was just people, people, people the whole time, and both you and I are very gregarious, and we love these people, so we, can't, we couldn't wait and everything else. But this year was different. And this year, about two or three months before, and we were thinking about what are we supposed to do, and we just assumed we'd be taking the trip, and all of a sudden, it just kind of came to us that something different was happening. I'd love to get the clock going, if you could. Uh, oh, thank you. Uh, and, and what happened was, I just want to make sure I know how bad I do, okay? <laughs> what happened was, is frankly, if I can just be honest with you, and I try to be that all the time, in fact, embarrassingly so most of the time, but, but being honest, I, we, I, we were in a place of burnout. Julie and I have this little rule of thumb, and I think this is a good one for everybody to just try, 
If you're about to go spend time with somebody, whether it's just a lunch or a dinner or a weekend or whatever, if you're about to go spend time with somebody and you really like them, so this is something that you should want to do and you should be looking forward to, but you're going there and you're knowing that you're going to have to kind of, you know, you're just kind of a little burned out, you're going to have to work it up, then something's wrong in your life. See, you're doing something wrong in your life that you're not in a place to where you can enjoy the things that God wants you to enjoy, which is one another. After all, it's one with Him and one another. That's the two biggies, right? Love God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this year, it was very clear to us that we were going to be seeing people that we love, and sure, we contact high, we would enjoy them, and all that kind of stuff, but we knew that our hearts weren't there, and that our energy wasn't there, and that we were just in more trouble. And so we were just asking God what to do, and there's this wonderful man that works for Holland America, and he sends out this email about cruises, and they're like hugely discounted, like 50% off on a cruise, you know? And, and we're not really cruise people. Uh, I do not need to be around that much food for that much time, okay? I gained 10 pounds, I just want to say, okay? Uh, you know, it's just ridiculous, okay? And so, and, but, but you know, I've done them a couple times, and they were fun, but this was... What I got in my head was not, you know, normal cruise. You go somewhere and you look at a bunch of stuff and you do a bunch of things. And it's pretty active even though you're eating all the time. But, but I, I just had this thought in my head all of a sudden as I was looking at that. And I got this image in my mind and it was, wow, what would it be like to be with Julie? Just Julie. 14 days. Just Julie. Looking at something pretty. Not just Julie, but, you know, scenery and Julie. Looking at something pretty. Reading a book. But here's the number one thing that was in my heart. Being able to just talk to God in a very relaxed fashion that had a lot of time around it and nothing else you could do. Captive audience, right? So we saw that, and, and, I, and I saw this trip, and it was still too expensive. And see, it was 50% off. It was still too expensive. And I called him, and I said, does it ever come down? And I said, not usually, but every once in a while, maybe. And so we just kept watching, and we just, the more that we thought, the more I thought about it, the more Julie thought about it, the more we thought, it feels like this is what God wants us to do. But we didn't have the money, and we weren't willing to make the decision to spend money that we didn't have. And so we were, we were walking along with it, and all of a sudden, you know, about two weeks before the ship sailed, it dropped to 70% off. And that was at a price that, frankly, it would have cost us as much or more to stay in Bellevue and eat, right? You know, and this would have just was mountains of food. You know, they literally served the food on snow shovels. You know what I mean? It's Alaska, and they just, you know, right? So, so we just said, that's it. We filled out the paperwork. We sent it in, and they called us back and said it's full. So we were like, huh. You know, okay, and this is, it's about 10 days now, and our vacation starts in like three days, and then the cruise starts a few days after that, and we just don't know what to do, and, and they say, just call us every day and see if something, somebody's canceled, so we're calling every day, and, and you know, they're, they're saying, you know, geez, by now we've got the cancellations, and every day it's getting a little worse and a little worse, it's going to happen, and we actually start our vacation, and we're in Bellevue, and, you know, we're thinking, geez, should we hop in the car and just go, it's not, the cruise isn't going to happen, I guess we miss God, and but it just felt like we didn't have any peace about leaving and that we just felt like we weren't supposed to do that. And I want to make something very clear right now. God does not owe me a cruise. Okay? That's just silliness, right? You know what I mean? I'm thankful for the good things that he brings to us, but he doesn't owe us anything like that. So I certainly didn't feel like he owed us, but it just felt like this is what he wanted. And so we're just sort of going through it. I, by the way, I want to say one other thing. I know there's a lot of people in here that would love to go on a cruise. And you know what? I hope you get to if you never have got to. Uh, it is different. You know, it's fun and all that kind of stuff. So, but I hope it doesn't make you feel bad that we got to. I mean, I know how that works too. So, but anyway, bottom line, you know, we're going day after day and we're sort of sitting there. We're going, and honestly, we got to thinking, wow, we must have really missed God. And that felt weird in my heart because we're just, I'm just kind of like at a place in my life to where it's not very usual that I feel like God's doing something that it doesn't happen. And I don't say that arrogantly. I just say, you know, if you really seek God a lot, you get better and better at it, and I'm certainly not perfect. I can certainly miss it, and I wouldn't have been surprised if I missed it. But it just felt like it was God, and I was just kind of surprised. And, and it was okay, and we were thinking, well, we're just going to do a staycation in Bellevue and save money, and it's fine. And, you know, it didn't feel like what we should do, but it felt better than anything else. But sure enough, the last day, I'd already called them. They said, no room. But the last day, 24 hours before it booked, they said, we just got a call, cancellation. Do you guys want it? 70% off. Great. 
you know, we packed up the bags. 24 hours later, we're on a boat drinking. I'm drinking a virgin margarita or a virgin pina colada. I'm not going to tell you what Julie was drinking. Uh, and the point is we're on this boat. And, and this is awesome. Now, I do want to make something clear here. Seattle is kind of an outdoor town, really. I mean, a lot of people are programmers, and they're kind of, you know, playing games a lot. But it seems like a lot of people like to hike and bike and do things outside and all that kind of stuff. I wanted to go to Alaska on a cruise because there was absolutely no reason in the world why I would ever want to get off that boat. <laughs> now, I realize that that's really dumb. I realize, you know, if it had been going to Europe and it had been Rome and Paris and London, you could have kept me on the boat, right? I'd been swimming before they docked, okay? But as it was, I was just sort of like, I, I grew up in that kind of country, and yeah, Alaska's even more beautiful than that, and the glaciers were certainly spectacular, but bottom line, I've seen it, and what I really needed was time with the Lord, and this was not a cruise that I had any temptations to get off the boat. We got off the boat three times. One time to buy a pair of binoculars so that we could see Alaska better from the boat. <laughs> one time because Julie'd run out of magazines and she needed more. And one time because we needed to mail a letter. <laughs> that was it. No excursions, no nothing. It was on the boat with my honey, a pretty view, reading books, enjoying, listening, hearing God. That's what it was. But anybody who knows Julie knows that we have a major problem with this plan with Julie's there. There's 2,000 people in a confined space with Miss Contact High. Okay? I mean, with, you know, one time, this is honest to goodness truth, we're walking down an airline terminal to our gate, and Julie says, why do so many people talk to me? in airports. And I went, Julie, I just was like, I said, here's the deal, honey. Don't say one more word between now and the time we get to the gate. When you see that girl with a pair of shoes that you'd love to say how cute the shoes were, don't say it. When you see that girl with her hair up done right and it's got the little pony, don't say anything about her hair. When you see the guy with the cowboy boots and you know, you want to talk about horses, don't say anything about horses. Just see. And she got to the gate, which was not that far away. And she was exhausted from having to keep all of this inside. She was like, that's how, I said, Julie, it's not that everybody else in the airport is just going from point A to point B. They're not. You are just, you're in a social place. You know what I mean? So we're on this boat with 2,000 people. And I'm sitting to myself and I'm going, wow, if we don't figure out something, this is going to be 14 days of nonstop getting to know people. The truth, okay, so here was the plan that we came up with, okay? I, well, no, I got to tell you this part first. Two times she left my side, two times. Now, she needed to break as much as I did. Two times, one time to go to a cooking demonstration and one time to go to high tea. From the minute that she went to the, we didn't talk to anybody else for any other reason. The minute she went to the cooking demonstration and then the tea, people from all over the boat we would be sitting there reading, trying to be alone, and people come up and go, oh, honey, honey, come over here. This is that really fun girl I was telling you about. <laughs> right? You know, Julie, Julie Mead, you know, and everything else. And I was going, okay, you know, but thankfully God in his mercy kept that to a minimum. And here's how we did it. We came up with a genius plan. What I said was, is Julie, here's how you have to think about it. You're on this boat, and you're from Latvia. And when you see those pair of shoes that you want to say something about the shoes, you only speak Latvian. They're not going to understand what you say. And when we're sitting there and you overhear that the people right next to us are from Iowa, you don't know what they're actually saying because you don't speak English. You only speak Latvian. I'm telling you, it worked. It was unbelievable, and she needed the time, so it wasn't me controlling her. I want to make that clear, okay? She needed, at least a hundred times during the trip, something would happen, and Julie turned to me and said, I'm from Latvia, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> she is so awesome. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is because it does actually fit, like I say, with a sermon, and, and, the, and I want to do something here. I want you to think, and for those of you who are here on August 5th, which is before we left, on August 5th, I gave a sermon. And in that sermon, I said, 
there's something going on in me that God's been doing for a few months, and it feels like one of the two biggest things he's ever given me in my life. One was steering teams, and this idea of doing church completely differently, for real, because there's a ministry of the body that needs to be happening, and the pros just can't help but overtake this discipleship that God wants to do in people. And so that was it. And I said, the other thing is new, and it only been for three or four months, and I said, there's this thing that is missing from our world increasingly, of the Western world in particular. Missing from our personal life, missing from our families, missing from our church, missing from our culture, and missing from our nation. And I said, what that thing is, is wisdom. And I went to 1 John, and I said, here's what God intends a family, a body to look like. There are children in the body, and thank God for that, and new people to Christ, and they're doing wonderful, and they're having all kinds of fun, and it's an awesome time, and don't ever try and shorten childhood. It's awesome, right? Enjoy it. Learn how to live life with an abundance like a child does, right? You know, don't, don't keep these little ones from coming to me. Those who are like a child inherit it, right? And then there's young person. When we think of young person, we think of teens and 20s, right? That's a young person to us. That's when you, when you understand what he's talking about. What he's talking about when he says young person, he's talking about people that are still engaged in the battle that is life. They're out there slaying dragons. They're making a difference in the world. They're doing something in their career. They're doing something with their friends. They're doing something in their ministries. They're doing something that's making a difference in the world. And that's a person who's fully engaged, got lots of energy, got lots of ideas, and they're out there doing battle in the world, making a difference, helping people. Okay? Now, that's what a young person is, and it goes all the way up into the 40s because, you know, little kids and all that kind of stuff. If you want to know what a parent is, a father, as he says, but a mother, a father, a parent, what a parent is, that would be in our culture, it would be like saying a grandparent. Think grandparent when you hear that. And the reason why is because what's a grandparent do? That's the time when, you know, the kids are out of the house. Your career isn't building anymore. You're now doing something quite different. But the whole the whole pace of your life starts to change. Literally, your hormones, the energy, but that's just the thing that God's doing to help you make a transition to a very important part of life, which is a reflective place, a place of wisdom, a place where you look back at the things that you did and you learn some things quite differently than you thought you were learning them. See what I mean? You rethink it again, and you come to a new place. Now, here's the key. It's not that the fathers then or the mothers are supposed to be imposing upon the young people. Do it this way. Because that wouldn't be growing them. And there's something new in them. Remember something about God. There's nothing new under the sun, and he's new every morning. So when a new generation is coming up, there's new stuff. But there's also a need for the old wisdom. There's also a need properly applied for this wisdom to be helping a thing move forward properly. Now, I feel like God, I didn't know that until I preached that sermon. It, it really, that's when it really came home to me. But God's been telling me, I need you to make this transition. And I knew that there was a transition, but, and I, I'm just, well, I'll, I'll get to that in a sec. I knew that he wanted me to make this transition, but I was just really, well, let me put it this way. I just actually was working way too hard to get what it was. Let me. What I think God was saying to me was, is I need you to become something different because I want to model what this looks like. It's not just for me personally, and it's not just for this church. I think this is a call that's going out. What I said in the sermon was, as I said, here's what happens. In a culture that is unsafe and, and it's dangerous to live, Wisdom is the highest value because it keeps you alive. It's a survival thing. But in a culture where survival is not really important, where making a mistake doesn't really make a difference, right? A young person can make a big mistake in our culture, financially or socially or whatever, and you can still recover because we're in a prosperous, safe environment. Praise God for that. But what ends up happening in those environments is that you move from wisdom being the highest value, which the Scripture says it is, you move to where youth becomes the highest value. Vitality, vibrancy. Because it doesn't really matter if you make a mistake and it's more fun to be young. See? They have that, all that energy and good looks and, you know, all this stuff. So, so there's this thing that's been going on and, and what God is saying is, I want you to model, I want to bring wisdom back. 
And it's not just a call on me, it's a call on anybody who I think is taking the time to listen to the Lord and is in a certain place in life. Everybody, a lot of people here. And the point is, he wants us to model it. Now, there's the problem, there's the rub. I'm going to tell you a little story about pastoring, but I want you to understand, it's not just my story about pastoring. This is very common to pastors, if not universal. And it's universal to everybody's life. There's a pattern that happens, and here's how it goes, something like this. At some point, how does a person become a pastor, for example? At some point in time, you have some sort of an encounter with God that is so magnificent, so glorious, so filled with all the things that life is supposed to be, love and relationship and the fullness of God in love, and not doctrine and not theology, and not even though that stuff is critically important, and you know how important it is to me, but I'm talking about coming and falling in love with God. And when that happens, you can, be, you can be at work and fall in love with God. Cy Simon is here today. Cy Simon is a guy who has loved God for much of his life, and he has done all kinds of things while having a professional career. You do not have to quit your work in order to love God fully. Quite the opposite of that. It's just that sometimes he does call some people to do that. And when he does, here's the number one thing a pastor has. Now, this is new for me. I want you to understand this. I say it's new and it's not because I didn't know it, but that doesn't mean knowing it and living it are two different things. Here's the number one thing that a pastor has in terms of being effective. Attractiveness in terms of what's happening inside of, inside of them about God. When people come up next to you and you are in love with God and it is real and they can feel that, people that want to have that love because we're built to have it want that. And you know, the, the old marketing statement is, what's the best marketing? Word of mouth. What's the best way to spread the gospel? Be somebody who's utterly in love with God in such a way that it's just almost irresistibly attractive to someone else. Now, when you do that, and he calls you into the pastorate, here's what happens. People come around, and more people come around, and more people come around, and then more people come around. And pretty soon, you're having to do a whole lot of other things than just sort of be with God and be with people. You're having to run programs, and you're having to run stuff, and you're having to organize stuff, and you're having to do stuff, and always remember something. A church is not an organization. We all say that. Here's what we say, too, though, and this is also wrong, even though we think it's right. A church is not an organization. It's an organism. One of those nice-sounding things that actually is false. A church is not an organism. An organism is a thing that exists in order to do any, but it, it is organized. It's closer to the truth. Here's what a church actually is, a family. The, the metaphor that Paul uses is body when he's trying to talk about how we're to interrelate with, interrelate with each other. But the primary institution that God has given the world to do well in the world is a family. It's family that are loving one another. And it's family that if somebody's getting a little off, who's the, who's the main people that are going to correct you? You want to know something? How many people actually live within distance of their whole entire family, immediate family, their biological family? How many people live within, you know, 15, 20 miles where you interact with them all the time? Just raise your hands if you live like that. Do you see how few people it is? We're becoming completely disconnected from our families. And so who are the people that are coming alongside and being able to say to you, you're working too hard? I don't know what you're doing. Remember Jethro? comes to Moses. Moses is overwhelmed. Hey, you know, you're doing this wrong. Hey, I'm Moses. Who do you think you are? You're not even a Jew. Come on, give it up. But no, a family can do this, right? You spread it out. There's something going on that's not right. Now, there are family members in here that have been trying to talk to me for a long time, but the bottom line, life and everything else and all this kind of stuff, and here's what happened in my life. And this is this is symptomatic of a lot of people's lives. Not everybody goes to this, this direction, but here's where I went. And a lot of people in a room like this filled with A-type, successful Bellevue people, a lot of you have this too. And that is that, you know, if there's more to do, you do it. I got to the place to where I wake up at about 6 o'clock, maybe a little earlier than that. I wake up about 6 o'clock, I go for my walk, I get back about 7 o'clock, and at 7 o'clock I started working. And it was unusual for me to stop at 9 o'clock at night. It, 11 o'clock was a pretty normal time for me to stop. 
Now, I'd do that for four days of the week, and then I'd Sabbath, and Sabbath is the only thing that kept me from totally burning out. And then on Saturdays, I would cut back to about 10 hours, and Sunday too. Now, can I say something? That is so stinking unhealthy. I'm not bragging about that. I, there are some people that talk about how hard they work, and they, they're really bragging about it. And can I say something? That person's life is out of balance. And there's something fundamentally wrong, and they are not going to be doing what they're supposed to be doing. And what was happening in me, I've been here 14 years, and I would say, you know, you guys have been here for 14 years. Probably after about three, maybe four years, I started to have to transition into something else, and I lost that fundamental attractiveness of passion for God and being able to keep that first in my life. And what became first in my life, even though I still love God more than anything else, what became first was all the stuff I had to do. And can I tell you something? That's not very attractive. You can stand up here and preach, and people that don't know you very well can say, that's awesome, and I'm going to live that way. But people who know you well and are rubbing up against you, they're saying there's something wrong. Now, it's not that I hate you, and it's not that you're a bad human being or anything else, but, you know, it just happens. It happens to all of us. Satan is always trying to get into our lives and take us someplace else. That's why I'm so big on Sabbath. I really believe Sabbath is the one thing that kept me from burning out and blowing up. Because it was that one time when I really said no to all the world, yes, only to God, and it just kept me in a kind of balance. But let's just talk about that for a second. See, when we talk about balance, here, here's what A-type, Bellevue, successful people think. There's plenty of people in this room, probably 60% of the people in this room, when I say, is your life in balance, here's what you say. No. I know it. I can tell you right where it's out of balance. No, it's not in balance. But there's a very high percentage. You, if I go into another room in most other you know, places that aren't highly successful and so on, you'll get that percentage will be as much as 80% where people say, no, there's something not in balance in my life. Might may not be quite that high, but, but you'll get about 40% of the people in this room that will say, yeah, I'm pretty balanced in my life. And here's what they mean. I've got a spouse, and I'm, I've got the priority on that. I've got kids, if, 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 you, if you're married and have kids. I've got kids, and I've got, and if you're single, then, you know, it's, I've got these friends and this social sphere and so on, and I've got this job, and I've got these things that I do with the Lord, you know, devotionals and small groups and some things, and, and then I've got this. And when you spread out all the things that I've got in my life, I'm doing enough of this and enough of this and enough of this and enough of this that it feels to me like I'm in balance. I've got it hacked. I'm doing pretty good. Now, when we come to you and we say, what's a balanced life look like? I actually say something quite different than what we just described as balance. See, I actually say Sunday church, it's devotional, small groups, threefold serving, outreach. I want to make it clear. I didn't make that stuff up. We got this initially from people that seemed like they were doing really well in the Lord, and we asked them, what's common to your lives? And we found out these are things that are common. And then we looked in Scripture, and here's what we found out. When you look at the Gospels, when you look at Acts, what, what is Acts, by the way? Acts is God showing us what it looks like to ride the bike. And then he's saying, for the rest of time, want that. Are we even remotely close to what the church in Acts looked like? Seriously? No. Not only are we not that, but when you look at the whole of the New Testament, God's saying, this is what I want life to look like, Jesus and the way that he lived. I want you to live this kind of life. And we live a very, very different kind of life than that. See, here's the balance, quote unquote, that God wants. Here's how he balances the scales. Seek first the kingdom of God above everything. Live rightly, meaning stand right with God. And if you do that, everything else gets added. He takes care of the rest. That's balance. That's what God means by it. Let me just show you here, just quickly. When I put those six things up here, because I know that when I put those six things up there, busy people with lots of other priorities are saying, look, I do two or three of those, and those are the things that really work for me, and that's good. But I do want to show you what the gospel says is good, is balanced. Because it says things like this. See Sunday church right there? And I blanked out the other ones. See, they worship together at the temple each day. I could show you forsake not the fellowshipping together, the saints. I could show you all kinds of things. But I just want to show you, just using a few scriptures when I could use many, I just want to show you Sunday, they worship together at the temple each day. That's their gathering. We do it once a week. 
They meet in homes for the Lord's Supper and share their meals with great joy and generosity. That's small groups. Being together in community, in relationship. So friends, choose seven men from among you from whom everyone, whom everyone trusts. Men full of the Holy Spirit and good sense and will assign them this task. That's serving and growing and serving. And boy, those people that they picked, they grew, they grew tremendously in God as they served on the original steering team. Devotionals. Can we just say, we're to be made and conformed in the image of Christ. And here's what Christ did. As often as possible, Jesus withdrew to out-of-the-way places for prayer. <laughs> Threefolds? Make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. This is, if you're not going to live with your biological family, and, and you know, even then, there's a better thing than family that can be had if you will avail yourself of it, and that is one another. We're all family. Who are my brothers and sisters, says Christ? You. And when you get into a threefold, this, I'm not talking accountability groups because, you know, some guy messed up or whatever. I'm talking about all of us being in these really small, intimate communities where we can talk about how it's really going. Something you wouldn't even share in a small group. And you can really work through it and have people pray with you and have them support you. And sometimes you're doing good and the other person gets ministry and sometimes you're doing lousy and they minister to you. And this wonderful back and forth takes place. And this is ordained. This is what God wants us to do. Outreach, well, you know, I mean, the Great Commission it is called. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so here's my point. If you want to be balanced, you should be doing all these things. And I don't mean doing them as in rote, as in, well, I've checked that off for the day and now I'm a good Christian. I mean getting life out of them. I mean entered into them because of desire because you want to be there, because you want to be doing that. This is what a person in love with God looks like. Now you can't fake your way into love. But that's why we call them values and not behaviors or not have-tos or whatever else. We call them values because we're saying, this is just what flows out of a person that's really in love with Christ. They're in community. They're in relationship with God. They're in relationship with each other. Loving God, first and foremost, and the second is like unto it, loving others. Right? This is what he wants life to be. This is what he says is balanced. Now, if you're paying attention, and I know you all are, I've just done a rotten trick to you. I started you off by telling you that life was like a cruise. Get your drink, kick your feet up, listen to the smell of the barbecue, or and listen to the smell, smell the barbecue, <laughs> and enjoy. Now, who isn't on board for that, right? My walk with Christ is like a cruise ship. I'm in. But now I just turned the worm on you, and I said, and it's got all this stuff you got to do. Now, I didn't say you got to do it. But you see, all of a sudden, it's like, well, what do you want, Kurt? Do you want summer, or do you want the nine months where I make a living? Which one are you talking about? I'm talking about Labor Day. I'm talking about this place of real balance in the Lord. In order to get to that real balance, the series that we're going to be doing for the month of September is called Simple. The reason why we're calling it Simple, let me explain to you. I can do this quickly. Here's why we're calling it Simple. When I was on the trip, I knew that the books I was supposed to read, I had several books on my Kindle that had to do with brain and habits. These were not self-help books. These were one step below genuine academic texts on the very most current research about how the brain works. And then there's some application in them. But really, they were, you know, these are guys that are heavyweights in their field trying to dumb it down enough so that a popular audience can see what's coming out of the latest research. And I had three of these books, and I read all three of them. I'm just going to take two minutes and I'm going to share with you the insight on this because this is the spirit of this simple thing. Here's the first thing. Brain weighs three pounds. For me, that's less than 2% of my total body mass. For other people, it's 2% or higher, right? So it's a very small percentage of body mass. The brain takes up fully as much as one quarter of all the energy that you expend in your body. A 2% mass 
is taking 25% of the energy. I've got these muscles. I don't have as many as I had, but I've got muscles and I can stand up. And you know what I mean? We've all got muscles. And how much do those muscles weigh? What percentage of body mass? A very significant percentage, right? All of those muscles are not using as much energy as is the brain. Think about it now. The heart. The heart, that's got to use a lot of energy. I mean, after all, every second for the whole of your life, because when it stops, so do you, right? For the whole of your life, every second, that sucker pumps. And you know what it has to do? It has to push blood through over 60,000 miles of vessels. If you were to line up your blood vessels end to end, it would go around the world twice. That, that's got to take a lot of energy. You know what percent of the body energy it takes? 9%. Brain takes as much as 25. Okay, I got it, I got it. I know it's going to take more of the brain. There are, in your body, there are a thousand trillion cells. What's a thousand trillion? Well, there's a trillion, and then what does it go? Is, is it a bazillion next? And then is it a gazillion? And then I don't know what the other two illions are. Okay? So one of you math guys knows this stuff. Come on. Quadrillion is next? Okay, whatever, okay? But you get the point. It's some illion that nobody even knows what the heck the word is. That's how many cells are in your body. And all of them are functioning. And every single moment they are taking energy in order to accomplish. Because as soon as the energy stops going into you, they stop too. They need energy to run. That must, a thousand trillion cells, that's got to take up a ton of energy in your body. Guess what percent it takes? 7%. What we're saying is, is that the body is about three, the brain takes about three and a half more times energy to run than does every single cell in your body. What's it doing? Well, the first thing that we have to note is, that's a lot of energy. The second thing that we note is, that's a lot of energy. As in, there's actually a problem about getting enough energy because it's taking so much energy. Such that, here's what the experts say about habits. This is really cool. Okay, you just got a job. You're coming home from work. You're trying to, you're going to establish your new pattern of life, right? So when you get home, what are you going to do? Are you going to turn on the TV? Are you going to have a drink? Are you going to go for a jog? Are you going to do your devotional? What are you going to do? When you're first figuring out something to do, when you're making a decision about what action to take, it takes huge amounts of energy. Your brain is firing on all different pieces. You're doing all kinds of calculations. You don't even know the, the, the tenth of it that your brain is doing to figure out what's the right thing to do, what's the thing that I want to be doing, and it's taking all this energy to make that decision. But whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, here's what happens. If the thing that you do gives the brain a reward, if you come home and you have a drink, that alcohol is essentially a sugar, and that sugar gets broken down, and the brain gets sugar, and the brain says, hey, drinking is good because you get sugar out of that, and makes, that makes me happy because I need more energy. Now, I'm having a little trouble seeing through the haze of that, but nonetheless, okay, the brain is just simply saying what you did was good there. Now, I'm not saying it's a good thing to go home and have a drink. To go exercise, those of you who don't exercise, how much energy does it take in your mind to get you to go, you know, Right? I am blaming my lack of exercise on the fact that my brain does not have enough energy to actually make me go out there and do it. Now that would be misusing the research, right? Okay. But here's what happens. Now listen to this. If you'll do something that is giving a reward to the brain in a consistent fashion, like if you'll do exercise in the morning and it makes you feel good and it makes your brain feel good and it's saying, I'm getting a reward, here's what happens. After a period of time, the brain says, I don't actually need to think about this anymore. But now here's what's cosmic about what the brain does. This is amazing. When it says, I don't really need to think about this anymore, it literally changes where it exists in your brain. You, we've got this reptilian brain. You know, that's the one that makes you breathe and it makes your heart beat. The one you don't think about, the one you can't even hardly think about. You know what I mean? Not really the way that it's functioning. And then there's the... the stuff up here that we're really thinking and firing and making decisions on and all that kind of stuff, right? When you move something from a decision and it starts to become a habit, it literally moves from the outer parts of the brain 
and sits right down on top of the reptilian, the autonomic. Because that's a place of repetition, and it's not a place of decision, so it's very low energy. It takes less energy for you to do. Just a sec. Oh, I've got to show, I'll, I'll do that a second. It takes less energy for you to do your job. To make the, you, know, you don't really make a decision anymore. You want to do it. You desire to do it. It takes less energy to make a decision to do a devotional or to actually go to your threefold or to actually do your small group or to, you see what I mean, whatever it is. See that? Now, here's what all these books also said. By the way, let me just show you this since I already did it. I want to show you that what I'm saying here is not just brain research, but as is always the case, God got there way before us, right? And he was telling us stuff before we ever had any way of understanding it differently. But do understand, this is what Paul says when he's saying, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I, ha what I hate. See what he's talking about? A habit. He's talking about something that's actually functioning at a different level. He's saying, up here, I don't want to do that, but there's this other stream where it now exists that is doing that anyway. And it takes enormous amounts of energy to stop that habit, bring it back up into the decision-making place, and either eradicate it or replace it with something else. Enormous amounts of energy. And in fact, again, Paul says it this way, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. Those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. See, there is the brain that's functioning in its reptilian way, and then there is the Holy Spirit who's trying to get us to not be reptiles anymore. He's trying to take us to higher places. And what he's saying is, is controlled by the Holy Spirit, think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. <laughs> but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Do you see this? Isn't, you, now that I've talked about this, do you read those words differently? I'm not saying this is the only thing they're talking about, but this is very much God talking about what the very most modern science has just discovered about how we work. And once again, it is an evidence of the truth of the Scripture that it describes the human condition so masterfully, so intricately, so intimately. But here's what these books say. Let's say, you know, you're hearing me talk right now, and you're saying, okay, i got to form new habits. I got it. I get where he's going. And I already come to church, and, and you know, I do devotionals. The small group and the threefold is not really in my life, and I get it. He's saying it's scriptural, and I'm supposed to be doing it. It's supposed to be an evidence. So I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to try and do small groups and threefolds, and I'm going to start serving. I'm going to start doing outreach. Now, here's what all three of these books will tell you about that strategy. You are certain to fail. When you do a New Year's resolution... What's the, t what's the average that you do? How many New Year's resolutions do you make? You know, three, right? Because you're trying to keep it fairly small, right? Maybe five. I mean, if you're really messed up and you want to totally sabotage yourself, just make it ten. <laughs> but, you know, we were smarter than that. I know I can't do... So I'll keep it to three. Here's what all of those books tell you. You do not have enough energy to do anything but one thing. If you want to make a new habit, if you want to change an old one, if you want to transform a habit into something different, you cannot do two things at once. You do not have enough energy and you will fail. And the statistics on it are 99.999%. There's always that one just super strong-willed, you know, right, that gets through. Okay? But the bottom line is, People will fail if they're ever trying to do more than one thing. So here's what we're actually going for in this whole series. I am not asking you to do four things, five, six. I'm asking you to look soberly at the things that you do. And then here's what we're going to do. Over the next few weeks, we're going to experientially experience each one of those values. I mean, I'm not just going to talk about them and you go, wow, that sounds good. We're actually going to do it. In two seconds here, we're going to do one of these values. And we're going to just take a few minutes and do it. And then and I'll show you how all, all that's going to work. But what I want you to do is each week I want you to do it on Sunday. And then I want you to try it a little bit through the week. And you'll see on your notes, by the way, uh, ushers, if you could pass out the notes now. If you do not have a bulletin, I already talked to the ushers. Could you guys be ready? We, I want you to pass out to everybody. If you do not have the notes, the sermon notes, it's not this. But you know what I'm talking about? Could somebody hold one up so everybody can see them? 
If you do not have, thank you, if you do not have one of those in your hand, raise your hands right now because they're going to pass them out to you, okay? And you need one of these. And what I want you to do is, you'll see it right on there, what I want you to do is I want you to write down the experience of today, and then I want you to do it a few times during the week, and when you do it, I want you to keep this note with you, and I write, want you to write down not what, it, what you did and all, not, not great detail, this is not journaling, I just want you to write down enough to remember, to bring back to your mind what it felt like. Because what we're going to do is at the end of this series, we're going to take all the different experiences that we've had and we're going to say, which is the one that the Holy Spirit's asking me to change? A walk with Christ is not a sprint. It is not even a marathon. It's a walk. It's a journey. You do it at a pace. You just keep moving forward. I am not looking to get everybody in here to do all these six values in the next four weeks. I'm looking for everybody in here to do all of these values within the next four years. I'm saying take it one at a time, and I'm saying find the life in it. Because if you don't find the life, you won't do it. If there's no reward, even if it's a habit, the brain says there's no value in it. It's taking energy. Get rid of it. See? So you've got to find your devotional in a way that is enjoyable to you, in a way that brings you pleasure. That's what the, that's what the brain likes, pleasure. So if you're doing small groups in a way that is bringing you something that is making you go, I really like that. You're doing threefolds in a way that you're going, I really like that. You're doing serving. You're doing outreach. You, you know, how could you do outreach in a way that you really like that, Kurt? I don't know. How many persons have ever led anybody to the Lord in here? Statistics are it'll be one in a hundred. But if you have, and you have, and you raise your hands, and I know, but if you have... <laughs> it feels pretty good. <laughs> it's, it's really cool. It's awesome, in fact. In fact, the guy that he brought to the Lord is sitting right there and love you and got baptized recently and he's doing great in the Lord and thank you for continuing to mentor him. It's awesome. Do you see it? The fact of the matter is we have to find the life in these things. I'm trying to make them a habit, but when we say habit, we think of something I don't even think about and I don't do and I don't care about. I'm saying a habit that you really like. I'm saying a habit that's bringing you life, and you just can't wait to get to it again. So the one that we're going to do right now, and again, so what I'm saying is this whole thing is about keep it simple, stupid. Okay? Don't do it too much and undermine yourself. Do the one thing. All right? So here's the one that we're doing today, devotionals. And here's why we're doing devotionals. Devotionals are two things. The first thing that devotionals are is spending time in the Word in a way that God can talk to you. That's the first thing about devotionals, and that's important and everything else. But we just spent, what, six weeks on soap, right? And, and people preached, and you did awesome, Tam, and awesome. And people preached about it, and, and people did it. We got all kinds of reports about people talking about how much they have been enjoying their soap. And yes, it's becoming a habit. And yes, I'm digging it. And, and they're starting to do the church's ones, and that's fun, too, because I feel like I'm on the same page. And we end up in conversations and all this kind of stuff. So there's all this good stuff that has come out of the, the word part, and that's the first part of a devotional. But then the second part, and they're both critical, but I, you know me, I'm just always going to wait towards the second part, even though I love the Word and could not imagine not having my daily bread. But I'm telling you, the second part of it is relational prayer. And when I say relational prayer, I'm not saying prayer because I don't want you to think in your mind, you know, the little kid that goes to the bed and kneels down and clasps her hands and prays for mommy and daddy and their friend and, you know, whatever else, and then they go to bed. I'm not talking about a prayer that is one way unto God. I'm talking about a walk with your best friend, the one that you love, the one that you've come into such incredible intimacy with that you just couldn't even think of, you know, I wanted to be 14 days with just my honey. God in his graciousness gave me that. Every single morning I get to go out and be with that gracious God who I love as much as I love Julie, I love even more than my honey. If you can say it that way, I think love is just, you know, when you get to an absolute, it's an absolute, because I love Julie a lot. But, but you get the point, right? And so what we're going to do here is this. We're actually going to, I'm going to put a little scripture up here to kind of help you get going. 
And we're just going to take a few minutes here, not a ton of time, but we're going to take about seven minutes or so. And what we're going to do is, is we're going to have a relational prayer. And here's what I'm saying. I, if you pray out loud, please don't, because that'll be kind of unnerving and distracting to the person next to you. And feel free to pray in the spirit, but please, again, under, the, under the, your breath or in your head. You know what I mean? But bottom line is, what I want you to do is I want you to pray. Now, there's going to be some people here that may not know the Lord, and you're going, you know, you can't make me pray. And all I can tell you is, would you do, just do me a favor? I'm going to show you a little thing to do, and would you just give it a shot? Because I'm telling you, the way I came to the Lord was, I did not believe that there was a God whatsoever, and I had an occasion to say a little stupid prayer, and I did, and I was shocked to find out somebody was listening, and it brought me to Him. So I, who knows what might happen, okay? But what I'm saying is, I want you to have a conversation with God here. And let's go ahead and start it off like a good devotional. Seek first the kingdom of God above all else. Live righteously, and He'll give you everything you need. I just want you to start your prayer, your relational prayer like this. Lord, in what areas am I in fact doing this? In what areas am I seeking you first? I'm keeping you first. I'm living. I'm standing right with you. It's good. Okay? By the way, please don't get up during this time. It'll be very distracting. It won't go on that long, I promise. Okay? So hang in there. You know, we're doing good on time. And so, but seek the kingdom of God above all. Where am I doing it right, Lord? And then do ask the question, where am I not quite getting it? Right? Where am I a little off? What do I do about that? But would you do me a favor? If we're doing it seven minutes, have that conversation last just a couple of minutes because I really want it to sort of progress into just a conversation with him. Just as if your friend is sitting here because guess what? He is. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am right here on the inside. I'm right here with you. Do you see it? So we're going to experience it. I want you to feel the cruise. Feel what it feels like. Okay, did we all get it? Okay. Um, Greg, come up here and just give us a little bit of instrumentation. Nothing, nothing you know, uh, the stairway to heaven would be the wrong thing to do, uh, even though it has the right title. Uh, you know, okay. Just, just give us a little. And, and I just want you to take a minute, and I want you just, just like I say, we're just going to have a little bit of noise. Trust me, just kind of keep your eyes closed. Just spend, and I know some people pray with their eyes open, that's fine, but would you just go ahead and close your eyes? I know some people might fall asleep. If you do, wake, open your eyes, it'll wake you back up, close them again, okay? But I, I just want you to have a conversation with God here for, you know, five minutes, okay?
It's still going to take us about another three minutes. We're a little over halfway. Just want to give you some timing and just, just let yourself fall into his arms. Let yourself fall into what it is to just be in his presence. Having him speaking in that still small voice. finish our time together and I just I want you to do something here God had to take me on a 14 day away from everything that was my life in order to get me to feel something and what he said to me was now I want you to go home and I want you to do the stuff that you also do the nine months of the year it's, it's 12, but you get to my draft. But I want you to do that work thing, but I want you to do it in a way to where you do not lose this feeling. Because this is what I want you to be. And don't let anything crowd it out. So here's what I want you to do. Take your notes, would you? Take a pen. There's a pen right in front of you. Borrow one from a friend. And on the notes where it says, can I have one? Uh, it's all right. Where it says on Sunday, you see where it says devotional Sunday? I want you to write down what it felt like. This is a lot about that, this whole series is. So I want you to write down what it felt like. Was it peace? Was it presence? What was it? And then throughout the week, when you do this again, I want you to write down what it felt like, not what happened, not what he said. I want you to write down what it felt like. Because I think God's trying to take us on a cruise, on a journey. I think he's trying to get us to feel something about the life that he wants us to be leading. You see it? Now that's not a bunch of works thing. This is simple. This is using 
him, his presence, his desires, the desires that he's placing in our hearts. He gives us the desires of our hearts. And that means, I think, that he puts them in there and then he sees them fulfilled. So if you have a desire for doing more devotionals or doing more whatever, you know, just start to experience this. Start to see what it feels like. And, and don't let it ever become that other works thing, that other thing. Keep it here. This thing that he's touching you with. Like I say, if you'll do this for the, just the next, you know, seven days till we meet again, and then we're going to give you another thing to do the next week, and it's just kind of play with it, okay? Does this make sense? <laughs>